Hey, this is Jason Overcome Redmond. Thanks for tuning in to the JR Overcome Show. If you love this show, we would love for you to do us a huge favor. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a five-star review, leave a comment, and share with your friends. Everybody wants to be on top of the mountain. The problem nowadays is people want to get dropped off at the top of the hill and look down. It's that I overcome mindset that makes all the difference. See, the way we're taught is you're going to claw, you're going to scratch, you're going to bite, you're going to dig, you're going to do whatever it takes to get to the top of that mountain. That unequivocally is how I have managed to keep myself moving forward and finding success. Two seals, one mission. The JR Overcome Show. And welcome back to the JR Overcome Show. This is episode 18. Man, what a run, dude. I tell you what, last week's episode, or last episode, episode 17 with Taya Kyle, I have had people blow me up right and left, man. Yeah, it was a steamroller, man. We are just crushing it. Every every week, I don't know how we do it, but we seem to out-top the guests that we had the week prior. And once every week, I say we can't top this guest. It's true. It's true. And I tell you what, this week's guest is pretty amazing. The story is absolutely incredible. But uh, going back to Taya, I mean, people just wrote me laughing and just and and Ryan, I got to tell you, you suck at editing because you didn't edit out any any of my my game show. You didn't edit out a single thing. I told you and I dude, wasn't going to. It was a total train wreck, but a funny train wreck. I, uh, the world's worst game show. I was show. hoping the video was going to work with it, and that's why I didn't edit it out. So, well, it, it was, I, dude, I listened to it and cringed, although I will admit that we got uh, Taya Kyle to say certain things I'm not even going to repeat them again but uh yeah the two words rock hard i got so many people that texted me and were like you got to be kidding me and somehow i translated that into giant cock remember yeah (laughs) cocker cocker yeah yeah, she cocker so uh, good it was good stuff ray what do you got going brother Still working on the camps. I'm getting ready to head. Let's see. I'm heading down to Texas to do uh, a little filming project. I'm then heading out to Chino Hills, California with the man, the myth, the legend himself, Bedros Koulian. Mr. Koulian. Then I'm going right out to go see Mr. Uh, Josh Shaw. Going to do a little uh, one-on-one week training in Wisconsin. And then right after that, uh, you know, me and you've got some things coming up. Maybe you want to talk about that. Yeah, maybe the uh, we got some. Uh, we're working on some of the conquer and overcome camps. So we're going to be uh, putting some things together. Ray is going to be bringing the thunder to build you into highly motivated, disciplined, elite performing teams. And I will be laying down some leadership, teaching you how to get off the X and lead people through those life ambushes. And uh, we're putting all that together. It's going to be pretty amazing. So if you were on the edge of your seat right now and you were like, "I want a little of that in my life," nice. it's coming. It's coming. So uh, I got excited. I like that. I like that sound. Yeah. Yeah, Hey, you're welcome. I raised I raised the bar. Let's get to it. So I'm uh, what am I doing? What are you doing? uh, I'm heading out tomorrow and I'm going to be with the man, uh, Bedros's business partner, Craig Ballantyne down in Florida. I'm going to be working with him at his mastermind, both learning and laying down the thunder, teaching people how to. Get past these life ambushes, micro, minor, and major life ambushes. We all encounter them. I encounter them. You encounter them. Ryan encounters them. Our guest has encountered them. Yeah, and, more uh, than more than his fair oh share. Oh my God! Are you actually truth? speaking at this mastermind? I am. That's epic. That yeah. is the definition. Speaking at at one of Mr. Valent. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. I'll just leave it. No, at that. I'm super honored. I'm super honored, and I'm gonna I'm gonna spread some love and thunder, and then. Uh, from there, I'm heading to Las Vegas uh, for a speaking event for a company, RPS, that does uh, a lot of amazing drone work. 
Uh, so it's a lot of ex-Air Force guys, ex-military guys, and we're going to be talking about leadership and teamwork before I head home. And then I'm out in Vegas. Or I'm sorry, I'm out in Chicago, uh, the 15th through like the 20th, and uh, doing an event, uh, doing several events. I'm going to be talking about mental health with the Chicago police and fire department. Dude, they are struggling, man. They're struggling. We had two law enforcement officers just last week who uh, took their own lives. So we, we've got to beat this epidemic, man. And the military and law enforcement, our first responders, this is not the answer. If you are hurting right now and you're listening to this show, you got to reach out and you got to get help, man. Both Ray and I and so many other tier one, tier uh, high tier operators, uh, it is not the answer. No matter how dark you feel like it is, brother, it, you are not alone. You are not alone. And that is not the answer. That's what we're going to be talking about on the 15th up in Chicago. And then uh, Brent Magnuson and I are doing an event, Wake Up and Overcome at the VFW. So if you want to hear about a little bit of structure and discipline and how to get off the X, we're going to be doing that. And then I'm doing some more with uh, Chicago uh, police departments up there. So that's what I got coming on over the next couple of weeks. You got me beat. Well, you know, we're, hey, we're both, hey, we're both grinding, man. We're grinding, baby. We, we are entrepreneurs. We are making things happen. And uh, you know what? It's going to catch fire this year. So it's good to go. So let's, let's jump into the show. Let's do it. Are you ready? I'm ready. Bam. Let's Boom. do it. I love it. I love it. So, uh, you know, the, the individual that we have, and, and last time we flipped things up, last time we flipped things up and we did the introduction and then we got into the word of the day. And I think we need to do that again. I like the flow better that way. Yeah, it flowed. Okay. Let's flow. Let's flow. So I want to tell you guys about this individual. He reached out to me on social media, and I'll be honest, I wasn't familiar with his story before he reached out to me. And he wrote me, and I read through it, and I was blown away. I was so impressed. <clears throat> and I, I forwarded it to my brother, Ray Cashcare, and I forwarded it to Ryan, our producer, and I said, what do you guys think about this? And they were, they were like, this is an amazing story. The JR Overcome Show is about leadership and overcoming adversity, and this story is just built on those foundational principles. Exactly. So I want to tell you about our guest. Our guest was born in Iraq and he grew up under Saddam's rule and, a, and it just an oppressive, uh, just tyrannical rule. And from a young age, he just fell under this and ended up being a young man who went into uh, one of the prisons in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was beaten almost every day in this prison. And when American forces decided to come into Iraq to overthrow Saddam and provide freedom for the Iraqi people, from that moment forward, he said, I want to help I want to see my country free. Yeah. I want to help the Americans who are trying to help us. And from that day forward, it, it changed his life. He joined the Iraqi army. He was, um, he saw some of the most intense fighting in the beginning of the war as a young Iraqi troop on one engagement. And we're going to talk about this in the interview. Amazing. He went in with 29 teammates at the end of that firefight, at the end of that engagement, only nine people came out alive. Wow. And it was so devastating to his unit. He was provided a battlefield promotion. And we don't see these things no. in the American military. They used to happen like in World War II. And I know in Vietnam, it yeah. still happened. But we haven't seen a battlefield promotion in a long time in the American military. And our guest was promoted at the age of 20 to command sergeant 
major. This is a position that's reserved for individuals that have been in for like 30 years. Yeah, exactly. He was 19 years old. He is the youngest command sergeant major ever in the history of Iraq. From there, he went on to become a intel operative working heavily entrenched with American forces and became one of the most critically um, important assets working with the American government at that time during that period of history. And he just made a tremendous impact. He saved lives. He is directly credited with thwarting specific attacks. And uh, and from there, it got so dangerous for him that he had to leave Iraq and he came here to the United States. He is now an American citizen. He has written an incredible book called The Terrorist Whisperer. He has an amazing documentary that is not out yet, but we got to see a sneak peek. Amazing. And it is absolutely amazing. awesome. So it is my great honor to invite and welcome to the show, Mr. Command Sergeant Major Hamadi Jassim. Brother, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. It's really an honor to be here with you guys. Oh, man, we are glad to have you. You have an absolutely amazing story. It is just incredible, brother. I mean, it is the foundation of what this show is about. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. You know, when when we try to select our guests and, and things like that, you know, we have a process, you know, that we go through a process of elimination. And, you know, obviously I knew who you were ahead of time. And soon as we, you know, we did the research, it's like, it was a no brainer. We're like, this guy is the epitome of overcoming, conquering and, and doing things. I consider you the ultimate, the ultimate servant because you really served not only your country, but you served the United States too. You did what was both, both, you did what was best for both nations. So uh, we both salute you, brother. Thank you. It's an honor being here with you guys. And I think that I will be able to release why I wanted to be in this podcast uh, and I think I'll, I'll be able to tell you this secret in the end of the show. All, All right, right, man. We, we love it. it. Yeah, we love yeah. it. So as we do with every show, we have the word of the day and we reach out to our guests and the show is built around that word. And we reached out to Hamidi and uh, I said to him, hey, man, what word describes you and describes your life? And I love some of our guests. It takes them a little while. It may be a day before they get back to me. They'll say, hey, I need to think about it. Others of our guests, it's instant. And uh, Hamidi was one of our guests that it was absolutely instant. He replied back immediately and he said, my word is detailed. detailed. So, Mr. Care, would you do the honors? I would. Detailed. It is. I got to find it here. I want to make sure I use the right one. Giving a lot of information with many details, which I think specifically defines who you are and what you did. There's a couple different definitions of detailed, but what I try to do is find the right one, which would represent what you did when you started collecting data and information. But without further ado, sir, what is your definition and rep, uh, representation of the word detailed? Detail uh, for me comes from uh, intention to detail. Um, intention to detail was literally everything for me uh, during that time of war. Um, it, in addition to detail, not only have saved American lives and during the war for me back then, um, but but it also has um, helped foil a lot of attacks against American soldiers and Iraqis uh, during that time. So in addition to detail, it was tr truly the main um, key success for me during that era, during that time. And it was the truly the one weapon that was in my um, arsenary that was keeping me going and keeping me victorious during those tough times in Iraq. 
I, you know, it's funny when you were, uh, when I read this and I started thinking about it, actually, you know, the SEAL teams, we talk about it all the time. We talk about, hey man, attention to detail. It is those little details that will get you killed if you're not paying attention. And uh, it brought to mind a story that actually happened to me because I had failed to pay attention to detail and it almost cost me my life. So when I was going through school, through college, uh, I still had to maintain my qualifications for jumping and shooting in order to maintain our special pays because I was still active duty. So I'd come back to the SEAL teams, uh, Hamidi, probably, I don't know, once a year. And I'd go jump with the team and I'd go shoot and I'd blow stuff up to keep my qualifications while I was still on active duty, while I was working towards getting my commission. So one night I came back and they were doing a nighttime water jump. And uh, I hadn't jumped in probably a year and uh, jocked up with a platoon. I was the last guy out of the bird. It was late at night and the winds had picked up this night. We were probably right on the edge of what the what the winds were. They were probably blowing at least 18 knots. And uh, so I came down in the darkness and there's a sequence that you have to do in order to prepare to hit that water so that you could immediately get out of your harness. And I knew I needed to get out of it fast with these winds. I knew that the water was going to be whipping. And uh, I came down and I hit the water and uh, I had forgot to release my chest strap. I totally forgot to release my chest strap. I had everything else ready, you know, reserve parachute, belly band out of the way. And I tell you what, the wind caught my chute and pulled me forward and started launching me across the water. And I was planing uh, on my back under the water. I could not, uh, I could not sit up. And literally I was getting ready to drown uh, when this little voice inside me was like, dude, reach up there you know, grab a line, pull it in, and pop a cape pop well. Yep. Yeah. And finally I managed to get it, but dude, I was choking seawater. I mean, I was like a few seconds away from blacking out and it was all because I'd failed to pay attention to detail. I had missed a step because I was rusty. I had not done it in a long time. So Hamidi, I love your word because it is critical. It saves lives. And obviously what you've done has uh, saved lives. You know, so you ready to dive into this? Let's get to it. You ready? Let's All right. It. Let's 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 go. So tell us about the Terrace Whisper. What led you to write it and what part of the book stood out most to you and had the most impact while you were writing it, you know, according to your life? Uh, truly that um, since I arrived in this country in 2008, I was ready to walk away from that life as it, it, it reminded me of a lot of loss, a lot of losing my buddies. It was a very different world for me. So when I came to this country, I was really ready to start a new life, a new family, and just walk away from that life and live uh, totally another life. Uh, until about ISIS started taking uh, Iraqi territories and I was watching the army that I fought for to build uh, was losing its ground, getting demolished by ISIS. And um, I lost, honestly, the majority of my soldiers and the majority of my teammates during this recent uh, fight against ISIS uh, when they were losing Al-Ambar, a province territory to ISIS, Mosul, and uh, all these events were happening. I was literally sitting home, uh, hearing uh, every day. I would get a message while I wake up. This guy died. Um, this guy, we lost him. This guy got captured alive. We don't know what happened to him. And it, it was in a point where I wish I could have walked away from my life here and got back to the fight. And I would look into the face of my wife, my, my kids, and um, decided just really to release my anger by grabbing a pen 
and I wanted to do something to honor their service, you know, not just to Iraq, also to America. Uh, a lot of them loved this country. A lot of them uh, loved the movies, loved the cowboy movies about this country. A lot of them believed and loved the Americans that trained them and were thankful for that. And I wanted to do something that they would be remembered uh, through. And uh, that's when I really realized that I needed to release my story. Uh, there was always a security risk about releasing a story like mine. But I came to the point is, is that if my buddies were given their lives in the battle, I shouldn't be scared about giving my life here in this country. So I decided to release the story, release, um, talk to all the intelligence officers that I worked for back in the day, got their opinion, told them what I thought, and all of them supported me. Not one of them have said, don't do it. You know, you might get killed. Somebody might find you. You're going to release. This has been a mystery for them. They never knew who you were. And now you're going to tell them that you're here, you're alive. Um, because when I left in 2007, uh, all of them thought that I was dead uh, and I was announced dead in a, in a hospital. And uh, when I grabbed that pen, this is when I realized that, you know, this is, was a way that was going to put me back in the fight with my buddies. And um, it was the best decisions that I ever made. I love it. How many, you were talking about the uh, ISIS moving in, and I got to tell you, as a guy, so I fought pretty heavily in 2007 in Al-Ambar. We were, we were operating in Fallujah and in Karma, and I know you talked about Karma in, uh, in, your, in the documentary. Yeah. And uh, we were working with both the Iraqi Special Forces and some of the Iraqi National Police, and I know for a fact that a lot of those guys were killed when uh, ISIS uh, swept through Al-Ambar. I am always frustrated watching and, and, and seeing where we came because I knew when there was talks of us pulling out in 2010 that that the Iraqi forces were not ready yet, that that we weren't quite we hadn't reached a level, or at least that's what I felt. I was really worried about us pulling out too soon. What are your thoughts? Because, you know, you were there and you were leading and uh, it's just so frustrating for me. We lost I lost teammates. When we were there in 2007, uh, we lost some of the Iraqis we were working with. And to have given up this ground that we fought so hard for and really to see some stability in 2008, 2009 into 2010 from a lot of the efforts that so many forces put in part of the surge, you were contributing to that is it was really, really hard for me to watch. So for you, what what did you see? I mean, obviously you lost friends and you helped you helped build this level of stability before it imploded. This is actually a whole entire chapter in my book. And um, uh, I beside this is uh, I've been mentioned also in the book because I, in the film, as you saw, I, I did not get into the political side of it. Um, it truly pulling the troops out of Iraq back in 2012 it was one of the worst decisions that we ever made. Uh, as Americans, um, as an Iraqi soldier that I know there were projects in the ground that were being built to have the American advisors being part of it, walking us through as Iraqi soldiers and Iraqi leaders through these programs that were going to take years to establish the quality of military that we need, the quality of soldier, of Iraqi soldier that we were building at the time. And these things were going to take years to have. So our plans and the U.S. plans back then is to work together with the Americans as long as we can to get these projects done. And the Iraqi military were not anywhere near being ready to be left on its own. Uh, unfortunately, what have happened 
is that our leaders in D.C. back then during President Obama administration have um, what we say is that they have bought they have bought the the traps that the terrorist organization has set for them in Iraq. They have convinced them that Iraq want to be in its own uh, and we need you guys to leave and pull out. And uh, within 45 days of the U.S. troops have pulled out of Iraq. Most of these ISIS fighters that you saw, that you fought in 2014 and 2013, were not actually coming from Syria to Iraq. That was actually not true. Uh, media been reporting about that. It was not accurate at all. These were the same fighters that me and you have fought in 2005 during the surge yeah. who actually escaped out of prison after 45 days in one attack. About 700 of them broke out of the Abu Ghraib prison. So... This was like a reset for a fighting game. Yeah. We just reset it. We let them out. They're all back there. Now they got out and they are more vicious, more violent because they already knew who we are. They already seen the Americans. They've been in, in a U.S. detaining facility. And this is pretty secure. And I know that for sure that when we were to get terrorists and locate them, when they go to U.S. detaining facility, the, the, the possibility of them escaping out of that is very low. But once the troops got pulled out, they got transferred from these detaining facility. They almost went to a building that looked like a high school in America. And within 45 days, of course, they planned the attacks from the inside and they knew this was the time to get out. Yeah, it, it, it is frustrating. And I think we could spend an entire show talking about this. And we try, you know, we, we, we never go political on this show. We want to focus on leadership and overcoming. But I feel your frustration. I watched it and was just... I was angry, to be perfectly honest. And I thought about, you know, what a travesty. I want to jump. I want to go back to a a point because you talked about the Abu Ghraib prison and you spent time, maybe not in that prison, but you spent time in Iraqi prison. I want to know about that. And I think so many of our listeners want to know. I mean, our prisoners here in the United States of America are so fortunate. They're so fortunate because we have regulations, we have, um, you know, we have civil rights. So obviously we have to take care of our prisoners. They get fed, they get AC, a lot, oftentimes they get TV. And, it's a five-star hotel compared yeah, to us. Uh, yeah, exactly. I went to the prison in Fallujah. When I first got there, my, uh, my commanding or my, um, my, uh, Ground force commander and I went to the prison and we stepped in and I've, dude, it was horrendous. So tell me about that time in the prison and how it built this overcome mindset within you that you wanted to drive forward and conquer and, and set you on this path that you went down. And let me cut you off right there, sir. And let me ask you to add to this too. If that wouldn't have happened to you at 12 years old, this is the question, like when I watched the documentary and I've, I've read everything, is if you weren't imprisoned and you can get in all that, do you think you would have still taken the same path? Because I always talk about with my conquer mindset, there's a time when a man has to face reflection and there's those pinnacle moments in a young man or a man's life. This to me is that defying moment. Would you, do you think you would have taken the same path if you would have either giving your money up and you can get in that story or that would have never happened on top of the prison. So just keep that in the back of the mind. Sure. Um, I think to answer that question pretty fast is that absolutely not. Because until, until I walked into an Iraqi prison, I was a kid. I was just a 12-year-old kid that refused to give his money to a corrupted member at the time of the police. And 
when I went into that prison and I got treated the way it is, is because I end up cursing that person. And when I cursed him, this was a big deal in our culture. I got put in prison. He wrote a false report, put me there. And when I got beaten in that prison in a 12-year-old kid, I was in a prison called Atesfirat, which is inside of the Iraqi Ministry of Interior back then. And I was being treated as an enemy of a state, not as a child back then. When I walked out of that place after my family had paid a ransom to the person there, and this was a common process back then. If you have paid cash, you can uh, delete all these reports and walk away. And the point was it is that for me not to face a a trial. And if I face a trial as a person that was doing something against the state, uh, it it would have been, uh, would have cost me my life. And once you are considered an enemy of that regime or an enemy of a movement, uh, you're not going to be looked at as a child anymore. They're going to look at you as an enemy of the state and they can put you on execution immediately. And my family had to pay to get me out. And when I walked out of that place, I was beaten. I was tired. And my personality has changed about 190%. And when I walked away from that sliding door of that prison to go home, I didn't have shoes. I was in a very uh, tough shape. I have not eaten well. I have not been to the bathroom in in weeks. And I just looked back and I looked at myself and I said, one day I'm going to get an opportunity uh, to kick your butts. And I don't know when, I don't know how, but if ever I come back to this opportunity to stop these guys from doing what they're doing, I will take it. Whatever it will take me, I was going to take the opportunity. And my opportunity was right in front of my door in 2003 when I opened my door and I saw an American soldier standing there. Amen. Man, that is awesome. Wow. Man, what wow. a powerful story. You know, so many people go their whole lives without, I know it's crazy. Goosebumps. So many people go their whole lives without a, a pivotal moment like that. And, and, and so even when they're older, they're in their 20s and 30s and they, they still don't know where they're going. And one of the things I love uh, about your story, Hamidi, and, and you even talked about it right there, how you ended up in prison is you had somebody that was trying to take your money and you write about this in your bio on your website, you know, right or wrong. And, and everything for you was grounded in that principle. And, and it goes back to that foundational moment that, that puts you in prison and then launched you to become the, the leader and warrior you became. Yeah. And, and what I think so amazing about this story is, you know, obviously I don't want to bring up a lot of memories, but you know, I, you were, I think, in prison for three weeks, correct? Four weeks. Four weeks. I apologize. And I don't want yeah. to sell it short, but uh, nah, okay. you went through traumatic events daily. We talk about this. And wait, most- wait, wait. So, oh, okay. Because if it was three weeks, I was getting ready to stop the, I was getting ready to stop the interview. <laughs> but now that I know it's four weeks, yeah, it was only three weeks, you, <laughs> only three weeks, you pussy. No, um, my, my point. I, I, was, I was told it was four weeks. Truly, when I got out, I never remember. You lose track of time. Uh, exactly. Never. When I went in, it was uh, later in the evening and I never even was able to because of the trauma and the beating that I was going through and being hit in my head a lot, I, I was not, I lost count on yeah, the day. Yeah. So I would ask the prisoners after the first week and what, yeah. what, what day it was and what time is it or any of this, because yeah. I didn't have anything at the time. Not to mention you're 12 years old. Oh you're not, you weren't mentally and physically ready. No one's really mentally and physically ready to be tortured. Um, let alone at 12 years old. But what I love, and again, I'm going to use Jason's word versus mine, is how you came out and you overcame that situation. It would have been so easy to cower down and just for the rest of your life, just, 
I've been beaten, I've been broken, I give up. And what I love about it, and that's why we were like, hell yes, is you changed, you changed lives. Not only your life, you started with your life, but you changed many lives. You saved many lives. And the thing is, is, you know, I know me and I speak for Jason, we applaud you for that because there are people that we, we see and deal with, you know, we do motivational coaching and speaking that don't deal with a 10th of what you deal with. And they're throwing their hands up going, I quit. 1%, I quit. I'm done. I'm done. They don't deal I'm done. With 1%. It's ridiculous. So then, you know, yeah. I would love to next time I do one of my coaching sessions, have you come on and tell them what you went through for four weeks and then go, you know, maybe if you put it in perspective, the shit that you're going through isn't really that bad, you know? So thank you. My pleasure. So, so Hamidi, from, from there, man, that day that that soldier was outside your door in 2003, how old were you at that point, 2003? I was 17 years old. Okay, 17. And you uh, you went out and you uh, wanted to join the Iraqi military at that point, and you did. You joined, and uh, one of the first things that you had to do with the fighting was really picking up, and Haifa Street, for those that don't know, at that point in time was one of the most dangerous places in Iraq. And you were instructed to go down and help recover the bodies of individuals who were trying to join the Iraqi military. And I, I, I wasn't sure if it was accredited Al-Qaeda or the insurgency, but either way, it doesn't really matter. They, they, um, these individuals who wanted to fight for the freedom of their country were mowed down and, and executed right there in the street. And you had to go down there and help with that. I just want to know what was going through your mind. You've already been through some horrific instances and now you've joined the Iraqi army and now you're helping to pick up bodies of individuals who all they were trying to do was join. They weren't even in uniform yet. Um, it, it, during that day, this was like, I, you know, these days are very memorable, like memorable days in my life because when I, when I got out of prison, I was not a kid anymore. And when I went to Haifa Street, before I went to Haifa Street, I was barely not a leader yet. And I was just a young platoon sergeant that got called by his commander to go retreat these bodies. I was already defending the Iraqi recruiting center, which is on Mothanna Air Force Base, to defending that place to get recruits in into the building, to want to fill the paperwork. And there was already so much explosions, car bombs going on. Um, and... When I got that call from my commander that day, um, and he told me the location of the dead bodies of these Iraqi civilians, um, something cold went through my heart because I was already about a mile and a half from Haifa Street, and I was already getting enough heat in my front checkpoint, and now I was being told to go all the way down towards the end of it to retreat dead bodies, to take them to Iraqi hospital where their families can pick them up. Um, I knew that day something, something terrible that was going to go down. So when me and my uh, platoon uh, leader back then got on these trucks, uh, got on the pickup trucks, and as you know, the Iraqi army at the time was not equipped uh, with the best equipments back then. We didn't even have armored Humvees. We had pickup trucks, our soldiers. The biggest gun that we ever owned was a PKC, which is equal to an M249, and that's all we have. And um, Ne never realized what was going on that day. We drove through that road and it was not usual to see that road not busy and not crowded and something not right that you were smelling there. So when we realized as we drove inside of that road that something doesn't look right, we have a drove in and the location where the bodies were placed 
um, we knew something wasn't going to go down um, all right that night. And uh, we got down. It was under the bridge that ended in the end of Haifa Street. Uh, the bodies were all piled up right under the bridge near the water. And uh, the firefighters started literally after three minutes of us walking down to the dead bodies. And we realized once we walked down to them, this was an ambush that was designed by a terrorist named Said Hitchum back then, who was known as Said Hitchum, who was a former Republican Guard staff officer that was more of the designer of these kind of ambushes in Heifer Street. And what this was the mind of Heifer Street. This was the guy that designed all these ambushes for the Iraqi soldiers, for the ICDC back then, and for the first uh, American First Cavalry Unit. So when we got there, um, so how many, let me, I, I, I got to interrupt because I, I think I was a little confused, you know, which happens sometimes. I will be the first to admit it. <laughs> but uh, so when you went to go help recover the bodies is actually when that huge firefight broke out. I thought those were two separate incidents, but that huge firefight where 29 of you went in and only nine exactly. came out. It was the same that day. That was an ambush. Right? Yeah, I did not day. realize that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was an ambush. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah so please we went there. It was going. just a platoon, and we were ordered to pick up the bodies. And just literally before we even touched the first body to put him in the pickup truck, that's when an RPG flew into one of our uh, pickup trucks. And they were hiding behind the walls, which faced the river and where we were located, which put us on a disadvantage because they were much more in higher ground than we are. So they intentionally drove us to get there. They put the bodies there. Uh, that day, they were planning to capture an Iraqi soldier in uniform to put him on national TV. So that way the Iraqi people stopped joining the Iraqi military because their tactics of blowing up the Iraqi recruiting center where I was working and protecting originally was not really working well. So they decided to figure out a way to capture a soldier in uniform and to put that on national TV. So that would put more fear uh, in the Iraqi people that are willing to join the Iraqi military. And it truly it, it made such an impact because after we left, I had never had a count of how many of my soldiers still alive. I have lost contact uh, with my platoon commander at the time, who was a lieutenant, and I did not see him until I walked out of that place, uh, escorted by an American soldier, an American medic, and I saw his body was hanging right in the intersection of Ivy Street, and I realized that he was uh, beheaded. Um, he had run out of ammo, and uh, they have captured him and cut his head and hanged him right on the intersection on Haifa Street. So I lost control of my guys. I didn't really realize how many people we lost. It was the first day of my life um, to actually realize that the training with the opposite hand uh, on how to use a gun, uh, it paid off that day because I end up, uh, as you can see closer in the camera, I have a cut here above my eye mm -hmm. uh, yeah, from a shrapnel that I got hit. So my eyes opened up. And I was bleeding, so I lost uh, sight uh, with my right eye. So uh, I ended up switching my gun to the left side. And our Marine Corps instructors probably were the best people that, uh, you know, that I should dedicate my whole life into because they taught me how to use my opposite hand. And it truly, that was the day that I realized my left hand has, has a use. And uh, I was able to switch my gun and use the left side and... Uh, uh, I didn't even have to close my right eyes because it was already shut down. So I was using my left eye. And when I got out, I was uh, ordered before I got in the ambulance to count my guys. And when I counted, I realized that I only had about eight people that was around me. And 
looked back and I was asking for everybody else. I thought we got separated in two different groups. And um, I realized that everybody was gone. Uh, they had a sniper that sat in one of the buildings that was taken the high ground. And he has a plow to throw our soldiers one after another. And I lost one of my best buddies there uh, that day that literally slumped uh, in the bunk bed that's right above me and uh, came back to the unit. Um, people were scared in my unit. They looked at me and looked at everybody and what happened to us. Um, half of our unit quit their jobs that day, literally just uh, took off the uniforms, packed up their civilian clothes and realized that um, 150,000 Iraqi dinar, which equal to about $100 a month, wasn't going to be enough to lose your life. And they walked out of the door. And, and not only that, but the repercussions that could have happened to the family for the for the listeners and the and, and the viewers or you know whoever's listening to this is you know there could have been so many repercussions for the family. I like I said when I watched the documentary, um, I knew that was going to happen. I mean, literally, like as I was watching it, I knew. Well, that, that was their attack. Yes, yeah, you know, twenty nine go in, nine come out. It's just a matter of time before people sit around and go, that's not going to be me. But the question I have with that is, I mean, that is, thank goodness you're yeah, still God, here. God bless God you, bless brother, you. man. That is a um, hell of a story. Obviously, nothing but respect for your fallen comrades. But how long after that? You weren't a command, you you didn't get the field promotion until after that event, correct? Exactly. So, it was actually a, a two days after. So two days after. So couple questions I have with that. You know, there's a few things maybe the, the listeners don't know. Uh, you are one, the youngest uh, field promoted sergeant majors in the history of Iraq. Can we all agree on that? Yeah. 19 or fact. 20. I mean, you can, I'll let you give the exact, uh, the numbers on that. And then correct me if I'm wrong, when I was listening to it, you were number six, right? You were number six of the new Iraqi army. Am I correct? Like you correct. were, you know, so that is like, I got to have some fun here. The, the OG of, of, of the new Iraqi army. I mean, that is huge. I mean, that is, you're one of the founding fathers of the new Iraqi army. How did you feel and how do you still feel about, you know, carrying that? Because when I was watching uh, the documentary, the movie, um, someone said in one word at 19 or 20 years old, he has, and I quote, some serious, Colonel Burke. Yeah. Yeah. He has some serious street creds. So, Go ahead and expand on that and, if you and, want. And I got I got one thing I want to add just in this. How many is uh and I'd like to know if this was going through your mind. I imagine it is, because I meet so many people when we talk about leadership who get put into leadership positions unexpectedly, nowhere near what you were at. But unexpectedly, or they get asked to move up and they feel like I'm not ready for this. Did you feel that? Because you, man, you, I don't want to say you were a 19 year old kid because you'd live more than the vast majority of men who walk this planet at this point. But what were you thinking when they said, hey, we're going to make you the command sergeant major after all that? I mean, it's incredible. Well, truly, this brings me back to a conversation I was having um, the day right after this happened. Uh, we were getting the bodies of our soldiers back. We were trying to notify their families, let them know to come pick them up. And watching uh, our soldiers walking out of the Mofenda Airfield, Airfield base with their bags and just going home and quitting their jobs. Um, and I remember that conversation with some of my team members. I looked at each other and said, do, do you want to go home? If you go home, this is really what they want. They want you to take off this uniform and go home. And that's exactly why they were killing you in the, in the first place. And I looked at everybody and I said, you know, I don't have anywhere to go. 
if I go home, most likely they'll put a knife through my throat in my neighborhood. And I said, you know, I already seen what a bullet feels like. I already felt what a shrapnel go through your body like. I said, you know, if I was going to die, I'm going to die fighting them. So I decided to stay. And I turned around and I went back to my room and I said, I didn't want to watch anybody leaving. And my commander came over and said, you know, they needed just tomorrow to be in the Ministry of Defense to be rewarded uh, for all the battles that we, we've, we dealt it through. And he said, the Iraqi minister himself at the time, Hazem Ashalam, wants to meet us personally. And I went there and there was an American Special Forces team that was a president during that time. I was the only Iraqi NCO uh, that time that was the highest NCO that led that battle remained after my commander was killed. So when I got there and I got promoted, uh, immediately the U.S. Special Forces had requested me to be the command sergeant major for the Iraqi Ministry of Defense. And that was the day I actually transferred out of my unit. And I brought my whole entire uh, team with me to lead the Iraqi Ministry of Defense. Man, I tell you what, and that is a day that changed your life because you stepped into the Ministry of Defense. And people need to understand this literally is the hub of the Iraqi government at this time and the Iraqi military. And uh, man, there were uh, the enemy within all around because you had American forces that were working in there trying to establish how we were going to fight this war and how we were going to build our relationships. And you had the Iraqi military that was in there. And, you know, we had the insurgency. There were so many different... um, loyalties, if you will. And you started to see this and you saw an opportunity and your allegiance was, uh, you basically picked right from the start, I'm going to help the Americans. And this led you down a road truly to become a Intel collection officer is what you really became. And you became an amazing asset to the United States of America. So tell me about that progression. And then I want to talk a little bit about two specific incidents, uh, two attacks that you thwarted that would have cost a lot of people their lives. Uh, truly, um, that event was very interesting because uh, as I went to the Iraqi Ministry of Defense, it was an order that I received, like just like any other soldier in any military. I received an order to command a place, and I went there. And when I got to that building, uh, I kind of looked at my team, and I said, you know, this is a probably easier mission than what we're dealing with. So, hey, we're out of Haifa Street. This is a new mission. It probably won't be as violent as what we were in Haifa Street. And I was wrong until about I walked into the building, and I was being uh, introduced by American counterparts telling me about the security of the building, the checkpoint, um, and about how many Iraqi employees that would be walking into the building. And something got my intention as I walked into the building that the Americans wanted me to protect the building from the outside and to secure the entry of the Iraqi uh, employees that were coming in every single day. But as I was looking at the faces of the Iraqis that were working inside of the building and some of the generals that was working already or hired already in the Ministry of Defense, it, it kind of like it made me take a seat in a corner and just laugh. And my American counterpart, you know, at the time looked at me with a weird look and said, you know, why are you laughing? And I said, it's kind of interesting. You wanted me to protect the building from the enemy and the outside while the enemy is already inside of it. And most it's kind of, of like, these, it's kind of like being in a hen house and then they want you to put up more fences, but they're the wolves exactly. are already sitting yeah, inside, already inside. licking their chops. Exactly. So what, was interesting is that, you know, we secured the front of the checkpoint, we secured the building, but then I looked at the inside of the building and I'm like, well, this is not, this is going to be very interesting. So I was briefing my teams 
and we were looking uh, the politically, the Iraqi Ministry of Defense was changing based on the political situation and the Iraqi government. Things were getting divided based on your religious background. So the Sunni, the Shiite, everybody was taking ministries based on that religious background. So it was pretty interesting because we had a Shiite minister at the time, and all of a sudden things changed and shifted in the Iraqi government, and we received a Sunni minister from the Ambar province who was coming into the Ministry of Defense. And when we were watching the political shift at the time, and it was a very interesting moment. Um, while I was dealing with the car bombs that was blowing up every single day and the front checkpoint, I was also watching the changes that were happening inside. And I, I think personally that until about that time, the insurgency in Iraq were afraid of the Americans. They thought the Americans have uh, some kind of magical glasses, that they would see everything, they would know everything. Until about that time, they realized that the Americans really didn't know who was who in Iraq. And they don't have to hide anymore. They don't have to be behind uh, walls anymore. They can just come and form a political party and be part of the Iraqi government. Because under Saddam, we only had the Ba'ath Party, which is Saddam's political party. And now all of a sudden you have multi-hundred parties coming through. So a lot of these terrorist organizations took advantage of that moment and kind of shifted themselves in into the Iraqi government, which gave them a place in the Iraqi Ministry of Defense. So the Iraqi, even though the Iraqi government was getting divided, but the Iraqi Ministry of Defense was it was getting cut like a piece of a cake. And all of a sudden you had groups were controlling the finance department, the contracting department, the Iraqi joint of the chief of staff, and you find yourself right in the middle of it. Yeah, all with different alliances. Uh, I exactly. thought it was amazing, you know, the colonel that you worked with, um, he, when he was talking about, you know, going out on smoke breaks with people and knowing that, especially the individual who ended up, you ended up thwarting the attack, like he knew this guy was bad, but, uh, you know, it was just part of the life that you guys lived in the ministry of defense. I mean, you know, you had to. It, it, I mean, my God, it really was like this, I don't know, Game of Thrones thing going on. Like you're, you know, having to be nice and interact with people, but you never know when you're going to turn around and they're going to try and kill you. Uh, truly, uh, it was really hard keeping a track on everything that was going on. I have deployed the best uh, team that I have inside of the Iraqi Ministry of Defense uh, called the PSD team. These are the team members that I graduated with in 2004 that was trained by Marine Corps instructors who are specialized in personal security detail. And I have deployed specifically that team inside of the Ministry of Defense. And their job was to hold every corner of that building, to be able to visualize everything that was happening in front of them, and to start really get to know the groups and the individuals that we are dealing with. And what got things very interested is that we got a minister from the Umbar province at the time, Usadunu Delemi. And when he came, usually in the Iraqi government, when they take a position like that, uh, they usually let a, a family member or somebody. And at the time, he brought his nephew from the Ambar province, who actually brought about 200 members of, from Al-Garma in, in Ambar province, uh, 200 members of his tribe as a, as a bodyguard. So the minister showed up, got into his office, and there was 200 of these guys who just got body armors and AK-47s, showed up in the building. And one of my uh, team members at the time was uh, hitting me in my bag and said, take a look at these guys. And I, when I looked around, they're all military age. 
They all had dark elbows. And they all look, people like from that area uh, most likely have served in the Special Guard or the Republican Guard are known to be pro-military, uh, pro-Saddam Hussein's at the time. And I'm looking at the faces and we just looked at these guys and we're like, how many do we have of them? They're like, we have 200 of them. And all of a sudden you have 200 of these guys deployed inside of the building. Things were very terrifying. And, and the most enjoyable moment for me, it was like, we have about 45 American advisors that walk from where General Betrayus has commanded uh, what's called Minstiki, multinational force Iraq, to the Iraqi MOD to lead the Iraqi Ministry of Defense, to, to uh, build the infrastructure of every department inside of the Iraqi Ministry of Defense. And these Americans would walk in with just a nine millimeter in their legs, and that's all they have. And uh, the lowest rank we would have is a major, going all the way up to a Fulbright colonel. And uh, it was interesting look to see these guys watch an American walk by himself into the building. And the building was not in the green zone. It was actually outside of the green zone. So it was not concerted a U.S. base. It was literally uh, between the red zone and the green zone. So people or Iraqis that were in that building were not going through the proper background checks that they would do on any Iraqi that's entering the green zone. So this is where the enemy have taken advantage of that situation because it was the only ground in Iraq where you can actually put your hands on an American officer without being checked or cleared. Gotcha. Uh, because all we do in our checkpoint is check their ID cards, yep. Iraqi MOD ID card, I'll let them in. And um, it took them about, I think, about a few days for them to realize that we are struggling in the Anbar province. There, these were obviously members of Al-Qaeda. They have one of their leaders at the time named Sabah Dulemi have um, came and requested if one of the towers get emptied near the river so his men can sleep in there. And of course, as the command sergeant major, I had a guard in that tower and I wouldn't let him anywhere near the tower to use or use the rooms under the tower. So raised uh, a red flag for us. We knew this guy was looking for something and he was looking for an area within that specific wall because that wall right behind it is a road that leads straight to the red zone wow. without being checked by any American or any Iraqi. So we knew this guy was some kind of a operative of some sort. And you can tell he's a former intelligence officer or somebody that is making his moves. And once we had that red flag, we were raising our security levels and they were watching every movement that the Americans were initiating that day. And every American would leave the building around uh, 4 p.m. after all the Iraqis emptied the building and leave to go home. Hamidi. Uh, oh, sir, go ahead. Yeah, man. And uh, just because I tell you what, we could spend literally probably days. Yeah. You you have so much, so many experiences but you guys ended up thwarting the kidnapping of an American officer, an American intelligence officer. That was their plan. They were going to take this yeah. American intelligence officer and they were going to torture him and use him as a propaganda tool. And your efforts and your intelligence collection and your de attention yeah. to detail. Yeah, there you go. Is what made the difference. You ended up also thwarting a suicide bomber, a double agent that was right inside the building in the innermost levels. And and you were doing so much damage to these alliances that were occurring inside the building that uh, it ended up costing you the life of one of your teammates who left and was killed. And then you realized that you yourself were in grave danger. And it was at that point 
uh, I believe in 2008, yep, that-, uh, that you left Iraq and headed to the United States of America. Correct. And uh, I really want to hear about that and your journey because uh, from 2008, obviously for nine years, you made your way here in America, this brand new land that you had been fighting for. And in 2017, you got your citizenship. Yeah. And I think that's Correct. the most amazing story I tell you what, Ray and I have talked about it. My mom's a naturalized citizen. I think our naturalized citizens are some of the most patriotic people I know. So I want to hear about that journey, leaving Iraq and coming here to America and what it what it meant to you. Uh, for those of you that can't see, Hamidi right now has an amazing, beautiful American flag behind him in the video. I mean, and I've seen it, man. They're just such patriots. So I want to hear you. I want to hear about that journey and what it felt like to be an American. Um, obviously, after I, you know, th- when when I end up stopping that suicide bolt in the Iraqi MOD, uh, things were really got difficult for me. I couldn't be in the Iraqi MOD anymore. At the time, I was not uh, a secretive intelligence source for the US intelligence anymore. I, I, the enemy has already known who I am and what exactly I do. So leaving the Iraqi MOD was a must after I lost, lost one of my teammates. And of course, you know, these cowards would take advantage of any, any situation. And unfortunately, I didn't have kids and, and family back then. So when one of my team members have left the building, they were able to get him while going home to see his kids. So leaving Iraq in 2008, it was definitely a must for me. I was going to cost my team members their lives if I have stayed and continued to do what I did. Um, and in that country, I was being considered a traitor. I was being considered someone who, who is just to uh, have caused damage to a uh, bigger, to two of the biggest terrorist organizations in, in Iraq at that time or in the world. And they weren't going to let that go. So I was going to continue to stay to the last moment and cause as much damage as, as I can. And, and elaborating about that is that I enjoyed the fact that they realized it was just a kid who was a 20-year-old that was stopping them on their track. And that is truly what I enjoyed the most, Love is it. that I was watching the biggest terrorist organizations in the world having their face going on dirt and being able to be stopped and they couldn't kill me because I couldn't, I didn't ever left the building. I was surrounded by my soldiers. I never went home. So unfortunately after I, I lost one of my team members, I realized that they were going to get as vicious as possible to get me or get me out of there. And I realized it's there for the sake of my team members to leave. So I left in July, 27, 2008. Uh, my paperwork was all done and I came uh, to this country. Boom. And, it was, it no was looking another back. level. So what's it feel like? What's it feel like to be an American? Everything. I think I enjoy being an American more than any American in this country. You said um, it, everything. And, and I think that I enjoy everything about being an American. God, I enjoy uh, being a free. I enjoy uh, speaking English without being hated on for speaking English. I love it. I, I, I uh, enjoy uh, a steak every Thursday. I enjoy saying my opinion without being afraid. Someone with the brother, how do, you, how do you like your steak cooked? Uh, medium. Good man. Okay, that's right on. All right. But you know what? Sir, you know? You, you're, you're one word. You gave the right answer, everything. And I love that. So let, yeah. let's move on real quick. Cause we're running out of time here. So yeah. I know you lost a lot of people, friends. Uh, you made it, your documentary, uh, is made in mem- uh, memory of us, uh, USMC, Major Megan, I want to make sure I say this right, McClung, is that correct? 
McClock. Yeah. McClock. Okay. And there's a picture of, uh, of, of you, um, in Arlington at her gravesite. Uh, why did you dedicate the documentary to her? Um, she was the first American, uh, she was the first American, the friend that I ever had. Like when I, when I met her back in 2004, uh, she was a civilian, uh, working uh, as a civilian, as a contractor. Uh, and when I met her, this was the first a friend that I met over lunch every single day in the DFAT. And I think that she was the first person to introduce me to uh, the American people because I was a person that grew up under a regime that all they taught me is about how to hate America. Uh, so I wasn't really sure about the American culture. And this uh, person had came out of her way to take her time every single day and have a lunch with uh, a 17-year-old Iraqi every single day to speak to me uh, about the American culture, the American people, yep. the American democracy. And I was so in, un, uninformed uh, about Americans that she was a redhead. I have never seen a redhead in my life at that point. So wow. I was even about, I was even questioning her about the freckles that she had in her skin. Uh, I was even asking if this was real or this is a tattoo. And she would explain to me this was just a natural part of her body. But she never laughed. She never made fun of me. She understood that I was coming from um, a place that I didn't understand anything about yeah. America. And she was pretty much more of a mentor, educator. Mm -hmm. And it. unfortunately, in 2006, um, she was the highest ranking uh, Marine female to be killed in combat by uh, an ID and a Mamadi. Wow. Well, yeah, brother, I respect. think that's, yeah, I mean, I think that's amazing that, uh, yeah, it is incredible to find those people that transcend race, creed, color, everything, and welcome you into their arms. And so many people in this country never see that. They never get to experience that. Uh, and, and it is truly amazing. So, well, listen, man, you are an absolutely incredible uh, human being. You are an incredible American and warrior. Where can people find you? Where can they get the terrorist whisperer? Uh, we talked about the documentary. I know that's not out yet, but I tell you what, uh, everybody needs to check that out. They need to read Hamidi's book. Hamidi, you are getting out there and you're spreading your message of overcoming and attention to detail. So tell everybody where they can find you. Uh, honestly, uh, my books are available on every website, but if you want them autographed, you just have to go to www.theterroristwhisperer.com. Uh, this is where you can get the, uh, the book uh, autographed, or you can get it from Amazon or any other websites or Barnes and Noble. And um, the, hopefully the documentary is now being screening all over the country. And uh, we've been doing private screening of it in a certain places for veterans. So if you guys ever want a private screening of it in your hometown, I would love to do that for you guys. And as I said towards the beginning of the show, um, that there was a reason why I asked to be in this podcast. Um, I, as a person, sometimes I would lose motivation. I would fall. And as I mentioned before, I was recently diagnosed with a brain tumor. And I myself needed the motivation one day uh, to get up and go get the treatment and go face all this uh, through my life. And uh, for those who don't know that I was diagnosed with a brain tumor, due to the radiation I was exposed to in Iraq uh, because my checkpoint uh, in the Iraqi MOD was a place that was airstriked during the, the, uh, the liberation of Iraq in 2003. And many people have been diagnosed with illness uh, recently who, who served in that place. And um, I myself lost motivation at a certain point. And I was hurting and I was going through, I thought this was the end of my life. And 
um, I just looked up my phone that day and I saw uh, Right Cash Care was going live. And I just listened to it. Nice. And I felt, you know, whatever Ray was saying that day, it was talking to me. Amen, and, brother. And uh, that day I changed my clothes and I went to the doctor and and uh, started getting ready for that battle. So that was the main reasons that I wanted to give back. And I wanted to make sure the podcast get the right sponsors uh, and uh, get what it deserves because it made a it made a change into my life. Brother, that, that is awesome, man. And everybody needs that push, man. All of us. Everyone gets on the X. Everybody needs a teammate to help get them off the X. So truly, truly amazing. So terroristwhisperer.com. Hamadi Jassim, you guys, you need to check him out. His story is incredible. So this has been the JR Overcome Show, episode 18. What an incredible episode. Hamadi, what we always do at the end is we do our two-minute, well, actually, our minute of motivation because yeah. everybody gets one minute and we talk about the word of the day. We close on why that word is so important and why this show focuses on that word. So, Ray, you want to do the honors? Sure. You know, Kick it off? I'm going to start with attention to detail. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to be successful, if you want to overcome, if you want to conquer, you've got to learn attention to detail. It's the ability to achieve thoroughness and accuracy when accomplishing a task, all right? No matter how big or small that task is, you have to have attention to detail. Take point of the finer things, not just the big things, okay? Don't look at the big picture. It's a lot of the little things that behind the scenes which make things happen. You don't become a Navy SEAL by just showing up and going to Bud's. It's the little finer points. It's the things that happen when social media is not there. It's about staying on the course. It's about staying focused, staying, staying mentally, physically, and emotionally ready for the fight. So guys, attention to detail. Hang in there. Pay attention to what you're doing because sometimes it can save lives. Yeah, man. How many you want to take it? Um, I my my uh, advice for anybody that's listening. I wanted to. What I did back there is I I I was uh, I was a commander and not a demander. And at a 19 years old, I wanted to do something different. Is that I went down to the personal lives of each of my soldiers and made sure that I was improving their lives to a positive way. So my advice would be to lead with love and be to be a commander and not a demander. Wow, that is awesome to be a commander and not a demander. That's Damn. leadership. That's how we lead. I don't even think I'm going to close. You, I think I'm going to leave it at that. You better trademark that shit or I'm going to steal it because yeah. I'll use that on my side. I <laughs> yeah, like that. How Holy we should shit. be speaking on that, brother. Uh, wow. Listen, that is awesome. And uh, I'm not even going to weigh in, man. I, I, you get that final Damn. word. So J Jason Overcome Redmond is going to just Lock it stand up. down. So listen, this has been an amazing show. Hamidi, thank you once again, brother, for my everything mind. you've done, everything you've sacrificed. You are a brother of mine. You are a warrior. And uh, this has been the JR Overcome Show, episode 18. I am Jason Overcome Redmond. And I'm Ray Cashcare. And we are out. Boom. Thanks for listening to the JR Overcome Show. Tune in next time. And please remember to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please visit JROvercomeshow.com. This is Ray Cash Care. Thanks for listening to the JR Overcome Show. If you love the show, ladies and gentlemen, we would love for you to do us a huge favor. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a five-star message, leave a comment, and share with your friends. Boom!